else. To get up and get going, South Coast, it's time for the Tim Weisberg Show on WBSM. Also streaming live on WBSM.com and on the WBSM app. Talk to Tim now at 508-996-0500 or send him a message or a voicemail through the WBSM app. And now, ready to start your day off with a bang, it's Tim Weisberg. Welcome back in our number two of the program here on Thursday morning, the last day of November. And just a few weeks from today, there will be a big anniversary celebration, recognition, reenactment of the Boston Tea Party, the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. And joining us now to talk about that and more is the research coordinator for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, Kristen Harris. Let's bring her up here. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I'm doing all right. Great to talk to you. And, and we're gonna, for once, we're going to be talking about something not paranormally related, necessarily. I know. It's, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so I've known you for a long time. I always cite you as being one of the best researchers that I know. But tell me, what do you do in your capacity as the research coordinator at the Tea Party Ships and Museum? Sure. Uh, so I've been with the Tea Party Ships and Museum for about seven years, and uh, my position was a newly created one about two years ago uh, to run our Boston Tea Party Descendants Program, which is one of our initiatives that we launched during the 250th anniversary year. And I've also been running our Historic Grave Marker Program, which is also a 250th, 250th initiative. Um, with the goal of marking as many graves of known Boston Tea Party participants as possible before December 16th, 2023. Well, I, I think that that is, uh, you know, something that when you think about something that happened 250 years ago, you say, well, we should have all the research available by this point. We should know who the descendants are. We should have this. We should have that. And it seems like there's a lot still left to uncover and a lot left to investigate when it comes to the Tea Party, those who were involved in it and everything that surrounded it. Yeah, I mean, one of the main things when you talk about the history of the Boston Tea Party is that the participants were very clear that they should keep that a secret because at the time it was considered treason, uh, basically. So if you could get arrested and if they could prove that you were there destroying tea, there's a very real possibility that you could have been arrested for a crime like that. Uh, and over the years, people did come forward after the threat of that was gone. But even still, you know, there's so many claims out there. There's so many family claims. So it's been really difficult for us to sort of parse out, you know, is this family claim plausible? Did this person actually live close enough to Boston to get there? So even now we're still finding things that we didn't know about some of the participants. And I mean, even, I think it was a few days ago, the Hingham Historical Society released a letter um, that they found in their archives from one of the tea consignees, Joshua Winslow, that they didn't know they had. So it's sort of one of those things where different people don't know what they have and we're still finding things coming forward about participants, even, wow. even right now. That's amazing. So as, as we're sitting here talking, I'm drinking a cup of uh, Colonial Boohy, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I am. Is that You're right? You're doing a good job, yeah. Spooky is good, yeah. <laughs> so is this the kind of tea that they would have been throwing overboard back in those days? It's one of five, yeah. Bui was definitely the most common. It was so common, in fact, that John Adams actually would refer to it as having a cup of boogie. Tea, uh, boogie. He wouldn't just say tea. Um, so Bui is the majority of what was on the ships that night. Uh, your basic Chinese black tea that most people were 
drinking and had available to them. But there was also two other types of black tea, one that was called Kanju and one that was called Sushong. And then two types of green tea as well, Singlo and Hyson, which tended to be on the higher end side and more expensive because they expire sooner. Uh, but the East India Company under the Tea Act drove the price down so much that one of the sort of driving points was, oh, well, more people will be able to afford this green tea and it will help them, you know, overlook the tax and buy the tea. It was their thought process. But as we know, that did not happen. Right. And that's that's what really led to a lot of this. I mean, it wasn't just specifically the idea that the tax on the tea was what was causing it. It was just a buildup of things that had been happening over time. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was, you know, the overarching sort of theme there was taxation without representation, but it was also in particular with the Tea Act about the people viewing parliament as supporting the East India Company, which was a corporation over the interests of both colonial merchants and their own citizens, their own British subjects. So it's sort of, it's wrapped up in the taxes, but the tax wasn't even the major issue. It was the fact that parliament was protecting the interests of the East India Company uh, at the expense of people in the colonies. I've also seen some stuff, and, and you would know better than, than uh, I think anybody if this is true or not, but I've also seen some things that suggested that Samuel Adams and some of the others involved were actually bootlegging tea in from from the Dutch and other places, and so that might have been a driving factor in this, is that they had business interests themselves to keep the tea from coming off those ships. I mean, that's definitely part of it as well. Smuggling up to this point had sort of become an unofficial official system in Boston in many ways, so... Prior to the Tea Act, there were definitely people, you know, smuggling in Dutch tea or finding ways to sort of circumvent the different fees and everything like that. Um, and we know that uh, Samuel Adams certainly didn't sell tea, but he was, you know, right there for all those people who did to say, oh, you know, you can't really do this anymore under the Tea Act. How are you going to get by? Is your business going to get by? And Samuel Adams was sort of that, I like to call him like a master manipulator. He knew exactly what to say to people to make them believe their interests were really suffering and to get them into the cause. So, yeah. <laughs> and I was I was also reading something, too, that said that at the time, you know, you kind of get the, mytholog um, the, the mythologized version of history growing up, and, and you hear about this as being, you know, this was what sparked the revolution. But in, in doing a little more reading, I, I saw that most people didn't actually approve of what happened with the Boston Tea Party when it happened. They thought that this was actually a, a disgraceful thing. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I don't know if it was a majority of people. There were definitely people that outwardly were against it in Boston. Um, there were a group of merchants, I forget exactly how many off the top of my head, uh, but there was actually a long list of merchants who signed a letter essentially saying that they condemned the destruction of the tea and that they support Thomas Hutchinson's government, who was our royal governor at the time. And that letter essentially went back to England when he resigned as royal governor after the destruction of the tea um, and Benjamin Franklin himself immediately said that we should repay back every cent for the tea destroyed. He was a liaison in London at the time. So he was, you know, hearing about this and having to sort of negotiate abroad and, and condemned it. Um, but then there were people like John Adams who previously had been, you know, on the fringes of the cause. But I think the, the destruction of the tea is what really drove him over to a firmly patriot side, if we could name it. And he said that, you know, they must do something so memorable that it must be an epoca in history. And so, yes and no, I would like to say. Um, but it wasn't universally resented, as John Hancock uh, said about the Tea Act. But there were definitely people that immediately in the aftermath thought this was a terrible idea. <laughs> 
but it's certainly come to be a a symbol of the idea of, of fighting for your own right to self-govern. And of course, you know, here we are 250 years later uh, experiencing that on, on a daily basis. When people come to the, the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, what is the experience like for them? And, and what can they find out? What can they learn when they visit? So uh, what I, we like to say about the museum is we are an immersive museum and we like to make that history accessible for every single person that walks in the room. So there are people who come that have a huge background in history, like myself or some of our other actors and reenactors that work there. But then there are people that come from all over the world. So when you walk into the museum, we really try to humanize it and sort of ground you in the history by immersing you in a recreated town meeting, like what would have occurred at Old South Meeting House with Samuel Adams. Then you walk down to the ship physically. We discussed how that tea destruction process was, you know, what the conditions were like, what they were dealing with, what the ships actually looked like. So you kind of get more of a real sense of how difficult that was for people. And you also get the sense that it was ordinary people that perpetrated this. And that's sort of our biggest driving point at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum is telling the untold stories of the people involved because everybody knows the names like John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, who apparently was on the ships that night destroying tea, Paul Revere. Um, but they don't know the names like Thomas Crafts or, you know, to just pull some names out of the hat here, Amos Lincoln or Edmund Dolbeer. You know, there are other merchants and uh, lay people and tradesmen that were the majority of the participants. So this really was sort of a mixed protest of people that were in the genteel classes of Boston, people that were in the working classes of Boston, some people who may have never met or interacted before. So the fact that this was such a united front and it was a very pointed, driven and calculated uh, protest is what we really try to drive home for people. So, and they did really dress up as Native Americans to kind of hide their identities. Was that, was that the approach they took? So there were different accounts of that. There are some men like Ebenezer Stevens, who was a participant, who says that no one wore disguises. But then there are accounts from others who say that different people used like lamp black or soot to darken their features. Uh, there are others that say they mostly use large cloaks and blankets to sort of cover their clothing. And then there are some accounts that say, oh, the leaders had more, I guess what you could say is regalia on um, but for the most part, you know, for better or worse, what we like to say is even though many of the people aboard the ships may have never actually met or seen a Mohawk person, they definitely were at this point using that symbol to separate themselves um, and sort of ground themselves as Americans at this point. So they sort of use that as a symbol separating themselves from the British Empire, which is always odd to me because they still very much viewed themselves as British subjects. And that was very important to them. Uh, this law and the Tea Act and the tax, you know, despite it being universally resented by a lot of people in the Patriot cause, was also sort of a point of contention because they still wanted to be British subjects. So the Mohawk disguises, for better or worse, um, I always like to put disguises in quotes, was used as a symbol by the Sons of Liberty and had been invoked as a symbol prior to the destruction of the tea as well. I mean, listen, this buoy has a very... Um distinctive smell so even if they tried to hide themselves they walked away from those ships smelling like this from dumping it is it true that it took three hours to dump all the tea in, into the water yeah three to three and a half hours i mean we're talking about a massive amount of tea some of the chests were up to 400 pounds in weight the full-size chests, and we know about 80 percent of those were were buhi or those fuller size chests 
There were also half chests that could be up to 200 pounds. There were quarter chests that could be 90 to 100 pounds. So all different kinds of chests, 92,616 pounds of loose leaf tea in total, uh, which at that time equated to about 10,000 pounds sterling in the king's currency. And in our day is about 1.3 to $1.5 million or pounds due to inflation. So quite a lot of tea, 340 chests. <laughs> wow. And, and yeah, that is a lot of tea. And it, and it goes to show, you know, just how impactful of a statement this was uh, to, to dump that much. And, and one of those ships, as I only just learned this week, was was built in New Bedford, the, the Dartmouth. It was, yes. Um, and that was the first of the ships to arrive actually yesterday on November 28th. So happy Dartmouth Day. Uh, but that was the first of the ships to arrive, captained by Jane Paul. Um, and the Dartmouth is really interesting, too, because along with the tea, it actually had um, some very important cargo, which was the books of the poetess Phyllis Wheatley, her books, uh, poems on various subjects, both religious and moral, were being shipped from London. They were the first books to be published by uh, an African woman and the third book to be published by a woman in America. So uh, incredibly important cargo besides the tea on the Dartmouth. It's just it's so interesting how interwoven it is. And now New Bedford can take part by sending some tea to Boston for the reenactment. Uh, we got all the information yesterday uh, from Ranger Rufai over at the um, the National Whaling Historical Park. And it is going to be until let me just give you the date till tomorrow. You can go and drop off loose leaf tea uh, so they can send it up to you guys in Boston so it can be part of that. So what's going to happen on, on the 13th? How are they going to, to dump this, this tea into the harbor? Is it going to be a complete and total reenactment? Are you planning on just throwing tea into the ocean? Oh, no. This is going to be a grand-scale reenactment, uh, and it's actually going to be a full day of programming. So for the first time, uh, there's going to be a reenactment in Faneuil Hall that will be a part of the tea destruction. And that is going to be a retrospective, which is going to look at different times Faneuil Hall has been used uh, for protests and different times the Boston Tea Party has been evoked for protests. So you'll start sort of, you know, in 1873 or sorry, excuse me, in 1973, where we're discussing sort of the bicentennial year of the Boston Tea Party. You'll move into 1873, where the building was used to talk about women's suffrage and other issues that were facing the public at the time. Then you'll move back to 1773 to the meetings just before the famed meeting of the body of the people at Old South Meeting House, which Revolutionary Spaces is doing their own event for that. Um, and then there will be a rolling rally after Old South down to Griffin's Wharf where everyone can sort of proceed together down to the site. We will be bringing about the Eleanor. So this is the first time tea will be destroyed off of both of our replica vessels. There is going to be lighting, sound, full-scale reenactments, um, hauling those crates up with block and tackle as they did in 1773. You know, people dragging them over to the side, having to actually rip through canvas, crack through that wood, unload the tea so it is as close as possible but we won't be destroying 340 crates i think that would definitely be a little too much <laughs> and, and so are you really just i mean how do the environmentalists feel about loose leaf tea going into the ocean i mean there definitely has uh, been some concern but uh it is loose leaf tea you know and all of the crates are retrieved afterwards they all have false bottoms in them so nothing is actually left in the harbor <laughs> and all the fish are just going to be looking up saying next time drop a little cream and sugar with that please 
Yeah, I mean, they're certainly not going to be dumping as much as they did in 1773. So, so, so and this is just part of, you know, a, a whole big celebration that's been ongoing and, uh, and people can take part in that. They can come and visit at the museum and they can uh, learn more about this. Uh, why don't you give everybody all the information if they want to be able to take part and how they can find out more? Sure. Um, so if anyone wants to find out more about the reenactment, they can actually visit December16.org. So December16.org. That will have the full run of events on there. That will also have information about if anybody does want to drop off tea before tomorrow. Um, and if anyone does drop off tea, you'll actually get a certificate saying that your tea was destroyed in Boston Harbor for the 250th anniversary. Um, so anybody that has sent tea or brings in tea, it's all getting loaded into the crates that are going to go uh, in the harbor. And, um, yeah, if you want to come into Boston, uh, the destruction of the tea is free and open to the public on the waterfront at 8 o'clock. It's going to kick off, and um, we hope everybody comes and joins us. We're expecting quite a lot of people, so it's going to be really, really exciting. It's probably going to be probably the biggest thing we've ever done, I think. <laughs> well, I'm very excited for it, and, uh, and I hope that everybody comes and takes part. And if I don't see you then, I will see you real soon. I will see you soon, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> All right, thank you. That is Kristen Harris. She's the research coordinator for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. And it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, but also very uh, educational, too, as well. So especially this time in, in American history where people are, you know, concerned about what's going on in the world. And with our country, this is a perfect example to go and learn about how all of it started and why it started and why it became such a symbol of defiance. So, all right, I got to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. And you're waking up this morning and happy to see the sun because you woke up and it was you've been cold. You've been freezing the last few days and you can't figure out why you've had the heat on. Why can't it get warm in your house? Well, probably because you have leaky windows, probably because you have doors that are hanging a little off and the or the weather stripping is worn down or maybe maybe it's coming out your roof. Maybe you've got some uh, some seam rippage, some seam damage in your roof, and some separation, and you need to get that repaired ASAP before you spend the entire winter. Just as your dad would yell at you back in the day, "I'm not paying to heat the outdoors," and that might be what's happening if you haven't had your roof looked at. All of those things are something that can be taken care of with one phone call, with one visit to precisionwindowandkitchen.com, or one quick trip down to their showroom at 1111 Cushion Avenue in New Bedford. Precision Window and Kitchen can handle all of those things, and they can make sure it gets done right, and they can make sure it gets done quickly. They've been doing it for a long time. That's why they know they're the place that the other guys go to to get different materials that they need because they always have things on hand at Precision. They're the ones making those double-pane windows that help keep the heat in, that help keep the cool air in when you're pumping in your air conditioning in the summer months. They're the ones that make those, and then other companies come and get them from Precision to put into your home. Why not just go right to the source? They are trusted. They are doing it with Precision, and they will make sure that you get it done affordably, quickly, and done the right way. So all you have to do, again, go to precisionwindowandkitchen.com, enter in all your information. They will come out. They will give you a free, no-obligation estimate. And if you decide that you want to go forward with it, 
They will get it done quickly and make sure that you are ready for all the harsh weather that is coming our way. Check them out, precisionwindowandkitchen.com, or stop by their showroom at 1111 Cushion Avenue in New Bedford. And we're going to be going into the newsroom in just a moment. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by New Bedford City Council President Linda Morad and Ward 2 Councilor Maria Giesta, moving that segment over from tomorrow because tomorrow is our mini Miracle Day here on WBSM. But today is also... The Super Bowl day for the Fairhaven Blue Devils. So good luck to them as they are heading up to Gillette Stadium later on today to take on Salem. You can still get tickets if you want to go to it. They're available from Ticketmaster.com, and you'll be able to get those.